This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. The following episode of TOEFOP is rated M.A. It may contain Batman references, time travel references, sexual references, lost trains of thought, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that the program is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who enjoys succinct, coherent conversation that might actually have a point. Minors must be accompanied by a parent, guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. This is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson, and I am not relaxed today, Charlie, because it is so wet here. Like, it, it has been raining consistently for three days, and it is, like, proper driving, mm. torrential flooding. I went to the shops this morning, and part of the road had washed away uh, rain. And it never have I felt more like a city person, because we've got horses in the paddock at the moment. I've told you this. There's a couple of horses down in the... In the paddock, on adjustment, we have an adjustment. And it always feels like there's been a misspelling when you read that word, doesn't it? It's like is a Kiwi come over to pronounce adjustment? Yeah, We've, you, you only get a little adjustment in your in your piddick. Get a piddick for for your adjustment. So we've got an adjustment in a piddick. And uh, there's two horses down in the paddock, and one of them's got a horse blanket, you know, like a horse coat that they wear, and the other one just doesn't like to wear a horse coat. Ex race horse, mm. too tough. Yeah, seen some hard miles. They've got a great you know. bod, you know what I mean? Why cover up that that racehorse bod if you've got it? If you've got it, flaunt it, mate. Yeah, basically. Well, it is a, a male horse too. Yeah, and he really does just strut around topless. Yeah, <laughs> never going to put on a shirt. It's the equivalent of <laughs> like, like a dude who, <laughs> who gets shredded for stereosonic like he's just been depleting carbs over the last eight weeks just getting buff as and now he just can't wait to strut around in the rain in your paddock well it does make a lot of sense actually that my horse thinks it's at a bush doof because this morning he was grinding his teeth on a little fence post <laughs> yeah, so right. was, that makes a lot of sense Had a couple of pingers overnight yeah and now he's been out in the rain all night yeah but we've got a little stable you know like and so we've opened up the stable for the horses to hopefully shelter in but because they're you know wild animals they don't really need the stable but because we're city people we treat the horses like dogs mm. and we're trying to herd them into their like look you've got a little horsey house <laughs> you've got a little horsey shelter get inside the horsey shelter and get out of the rain but they don't seem to understand that what's your it's raining uh we're in different parts of new south wales but it feels like there is a big uh monsoonal wet washing across the state because it's very wet down here as well and um, you know, our routine, our morning routine normally uh, as a family is once we've had breakfast, we put Iona in the pram, we go for like a little walk along the water. But we had to abandon ship because it was so wet. And I'm one of these people who's like, well, if I'm committing to a walk, you know, I'll just put on my wet weather gear and I'll do the walk because once you're wet, then what's the point? But it was, we just had to turn back. Like it was so wet. My waterproof clothing turns out was not waterproof. It was water resistant, which I found out after about 15 minutes of just like torrential rain. Yeah, this is a level of rain that resistant is nowhere near enough. Sorry, resistance. Your resistance has been overpowered by something that you actually need waterproof. Um, yeah, it is so wet here this morning. And uh 
I went to the local shops and even just that bit where you get out of the car to go across the road and you're like dodging rivers mm. and floods and and then of course there's the social distancing aspect so I, I went to the coffee shop and I wanted to get a coffee and there's only about room inside socially distanced for about four people in the coffee shop and then so realistically if you want to be socially distanced you have to stand outside and so I was standing outside in the rain doing my proper socially distanced thing but of course that just meant that everybody else who came along thought that I'd already been served and would just yeah. go inside in front of me. And I was like, hang on, I'm not just standing out here for fun. I'm trying to do the right thing. Mate, mate, you and I are cut from the same cloth because the same thing happened to me yesterday where I went up to the butcher and there was uh, they only allowed two people in the store at, at any one time. And there was a woman in front of me and there was two uh, other people in the store who were taking their time getting a fair few things. So while they're taking their time, I sort of left my position behind the woman who was next in line to go to the window to have a look at what they had on offer. So I could didn't want to hold anyone up, Will. wanted to make my selections early so I could just go in and order straight away. And then when I came back, two more people had added to the queue, but then were like refused to acknowledge that I had been in that line before because I went, I it then became this kind of passive aggressive, we didn't say anything, but I went and stood next, not next to the person, but like socially distanced, uh, parallel to the person who had taken my spot. And then it just became this kind of game of chicken of like once uh, the doors opened, who was going to take the first step? And it was a, it was a case of, it was a bit like gunslingers, you know, the first one to take that step, the other person's going to take a step. But I pushed my way past that 85-year-old lady. Don't you worry about that. It feels to me like you were protecting her because she's in a vulnerable group. Yes. You're really a hero. Yeah. You haven't pushed past her. You've saved her life. You've essentially jumped in front of a, a bullet bodyguard style. You've kept accosting her. You should have been humming, I will always love you, as you did it to make the point that you were making. But I noticed that the coffee shop, it had all turned into a game of Tetris. Because mm. as you said, you suddenly start to socially distance in a way that is not necessarily you know, directly behind the person. You'll go to the same distance to the side. So mm. you really do start to move like you're in the game Tetris and everybody's yeah. just like shuffling in, shuffling out in those angles. It's also um, when you're in those kind of, like I sort of get, um, I, I, I forget, our local coffee shop, it's only a small little hole in the wall type place. And so you, I'll put my order in and then I'll hang out for a couple of minutes while they make the coffee. And I've started to forget that maybe I shouldn't be hanging out in the store. Maybe I should go out into the rain. And so there now there's now this like a, it's like a ring a ring a rosy of cause it's a popular little coffee hole in the wall. And so people will come up and we all do this like circle work where you come in, rotate out of the store, <laughs> hit the footpath and then rotate in again. I actually have been quite impressed though. You know, everyone saw that meme last week from that, that woman in Brighton who's like, you know, she's done all the streets in Brighton and there's someone who grew up in Brighton. I know that person. I know that sense of entitlement. I know what that's like. And I would have thought the area I live in in Sydney now has a similar, similar level of entitlement. You know, there is, it's a similar personality type, but everyone's still doing a pretty good job. The only place where it's out the window is the fast food joint where the burger shop that I've talked about before, where kids are literally doing like human pyramids and stuff. There is no social distancing. Bunch of teenagers yesterday, Will, all sitting around on the concrete, all touching their feet barefoot sitting around hanging out it's like what are you doing stop touching each other what you've described though is the difference between old money and new money you're talking old entitlement which is brighton that's your old mm. entitlement that is generations of entitlement brighton whereas like where you live that's new entitlement 
That's people mm. who've moved into entitlement. They're trying <laughs> entitlement on to see if it works for them before they move that to That woman too. Like, as it turns out, uh, my family, I'm in a WhatsApp chat. Uh, my sister identified her. Apparently. A WhatsApp or some- a WhatsApp? Because that's... Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> have they changed what did it I during say? this? Have they changed did I say, it WhatsApp? during this? I mean, a WhatsApp a WhatsApp, oh, app. Hang on, what is it? WhatsApp. It's WhatsApp. Yeah. It's WhatsApp. But WhatsApp is actually much more appropriate. It's a pandemic version of WhatsApp, which is, what's up? Are you cool? <laughs> or like, as, I'm in a, a one for teenagers, which is called, what's up? What's up? <laughs> I actually regret, I started my family WhatsApp because uh, they're all over Australia and... Um, especially when the pandemic started, we all wanted to sort of keep in touch and just check in, particularly the the family that are in Melbourne. And I have had to put it on mute numerous occasions because my family, it turns out they really like each other. I had no idea. I've grown up with my brothers and sisters my entire life, but they are so chatty with one another and just constantly interested in what each other is doing and wanting to see photos of renovations and nieces and nephews achievements and that kind of stuff just really genuine wholesome family interactions and i'm like mute 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 (laughs) too much (laughs) i got my phone blowing up i like the idea that you've been muting them for years in real life but now you have to (laughs) mute them in technology well the thing is i started it i was like because a lot of them uh, aren't even on social media or have you know don't really uh, use Facebook or anything like that so I sort of encouraged them I said look this is a really easy way you don't have to worry about signing up to Facebook or anything like that it's just like a little message window just for our family and that way we can just keep things really simple and concise but since I've done it they have taken the ball and run with it like my sister my elder sister Katie in Perth who's fucking awesome but she it's like she's just discovered like social media because every single observation is like a little she'll send a photo because she's renovating the house at the moment so we're getting constant updates and she likes everything like it's it's great it's so nice because everything that anyone posts she'll comment with like love heart emoji and stuff like that it's just (laughs) constant affirmation i don't know why i'm being so cynical like i i should be grateful that i have so many wonderful brothers and sisters who are just so encouraging and welcoming but i'm like oh come on guys just be a bit more cynical please (laughs) mute yeah mute How many WhatsApp groups are you part of? Uh, That are not connected to this show? Yeah. Or or the other shows that we do? Oh, yeah. Zero. This is the only WhatsApp group. Uh, Look, again, occasionally get messages from the guy I used to buy weed from. (laughs) He'll, He'll occasionally send me like a meme or a joke or something he's written for one of his social media sites. But and that doesn't really count, I think, as a WhatsApp group. That just counts as a number that I haven't erased. Right. So he's using you as his own personal kind of like Instagram or something. He's posting like funny memes and shit. Actually, what he'll do, because he's a really great bloke and I, we were quite friendly and um, he will sometimes even get me to take a pass on one of the things he's going to post. So he wanted to write something about the, the <laughs> lockdown like you're of in- the Victorian apartment <laughs> blocks. And so he'd written this Instagram post and he just sent it to me going, hey, could you have a look at this and make sure that I'm not like being un- unintentionally offensive or that I'm, I've got a blind spot here. And so I did a little pass on his Instagram post. You punched it up. Yeah, I did a little punch up. That's what I use WhatsApp for, punching up my old pot dealer. Instagram post. <laughs> that's amazing. I didn't realize. Well, that's maybe a service you can get into now. Like, you, you know, it might be a while before you're doing stand up again. Maybe you should just be punching up people's social media posts. 
I've actually been doing an incredible amount of punching up and for other people. Uh, another friend of ours was working on a project that they sent me to have a little you know, look over as well and I did a draft of that and then I've had a couple of others since. And it's amazing what I'm willing to agree to when I have my own work that I need to get to that I'm ignoring. That is the perfect yeah. time to get me to work on your project when I actually have something I should be working on myself. And it's also like I, I do the same thing. I've had friends send me stuff to read or just give notes on and – you're right. Like, a, it's a, it's a, feels like a genuine excuse for working on your own stuff because you know you're helping out someone else, and you know the rising tide lifts all boats and all that kind of stuff. But being an editor is great because you have none of the hang-ups, you don't have any of the history. You can be completely objective, and you can just come in and and just and just say this works, that doesn't work, and and then pass it on again. And and it's, you can be as adventurous and as open-minded as you want with someone else's work, but when it comes to your own work, you're like, oh no. I'm racked with so much self-doubt. I know the history of this idea. Oh, it's such a brilliant job because it's mostly how I watch things anyway, which is going, yeah, this is good, yeah. but this is how it could have been better. The opportunity that somebody actually then sends it to you so that you can try to make it better is actually really good fun. I think I would love being an editor in that regard. I mean, there's people, there's huge YouTube channels which are dedicated to basically that thing. There's a bunch of like film YouTube, which is... You know, um, how could you how could you rewrite the Matrix sequels to make them work? Or you know, uh, how could you rewrite this film franchise? Or if you were to do a sequel on this film, what would it be? And they're huge and they're really good. There's one guy in particular, I think um, the Weekly Planet put me onto him. His name is Patrick Willems, and he's like a film studies major, and he makes these really uh, uh, entertaining kind of film critique videos, but. If he's talking about a certain director or a certain genre, he will make the the video in the style of that genre. So he just did one on Christopher Nolan, which I was going to send you because it's really, really interesting. He sort of talks about the evolving visual style of Christopher Nolan, which I know you're not really into visuals and films, but it's more analyzing Christopher Nolan's approach to filmmaking storytelling in general. You know, Christopher Nolan loves... He, he sort of starts with this question of, um, you know, how do you define... A Christopher Nolan film like what and people always say oh you know they're meticulously plotted they're uh, involved with the idea of time they're very uh, subjective to one person's point of view but in terms of a visual style what is it and he's gone it's actually really hard to define you know a Christopher Nolan film when you see it but it's not like you can identify you know the same visual trademarks that a Michael Bay might have or a Steven Spielberg or whatever and the way he breaks it down is that um, using interviews with Christopher Nolan and um, his DP is this idea that Christopher Nolan, when he started, he's just anti-artifice. Everything that he makes, he, he doesn't want you to know that you're watching a film. He wants it to feel real. So he doesn't do transitions. He doesn't do big fancy camera moves. It's just mostly it's handheld. The camera, when you're filming a conversation, it's kind of just like two singles with a camera at eye level. So you're just listening to people talking big exposition dumps. But then something happened around the time of the dark night when he started working in IMAX, when he realized that if you're watching a gigantic screen and you've just got a big close-up of someone's face talking, it's really disconcerting. And so that's when he started to move the camera more, shoot wider shots. Like if you think about the dark night, there's a, that opening sequence with the Joker, there's a couple of really iconic images like, you know, that classic shot of the Joker waiting on the side of the road holding the mask and that slow pushing on the mask and then the wide shot of the bank robbers going over the, you know, the zip line of the buildings and stuff. And so this Patrick Willems, his theory is like when 
uh, Christopher Nolan started working this different format. It changed the way he told stories. And so now he still has those intricately, intricately plotted films, but now he has a visual style that kind of matches the complexity of the stories he's telling. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that sounds fascinating. I'm fascinated at the moment by how Tenet has become a bit of a harbinger of the times. It feels like mm. I'm not going to think that everything's okay in the world until Tenet comes out now. That, to me, is the marker in the ground. Originally, it was set for a date and you were like, okay, there's going to be people back in cinemas when Christopher Nolan decides there's going to be people back in cinemas. Now it feels like the pandemic is over only when Christopher Nolan decides we can see Tenet. It's really become like a bellwether, hasn't it? It's 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 because it, it's also become this debate around uh, you know um, the ethical responsibility of an artist, you know, and you would have to face this as well. The idea that this thing that you do that attracts a crowd, do you have a responsibility to make it unavailable until we're in a position where that danger is minimised? Like you got to you understand that there's millions of dollars involved, and you know distributors and cinemas have had deals made and they're all losing money and they're desperate to get this thing out to pay for itself because they're just hemorrhaging money right now. But at the same time, you have a responsibility not to endanger people. Well, it's a conversation I've been having almost constantly in the last month because we had shows booked for the end of the year and obviously we're going to have to cancel a lot of those shows. Some of those shows are in places where there's a possibility that we might not have to cancel them. But I think that Perhaps I have a moral responsibility to cancel them myself, even though, because I just don't know how I feel about the idea. I don't think that anything that I have to say is good enough that you should risk your life to say it. Yeah, well, I guess it's, I mean, I, I sort of, um, my point of view is constantly shifting on this because part of me is like, well, if you could do it like the what the AFL and NRL are doing, where it's like hubs, it's like, well, this is we are taking every precaution we can. Like, the, obviously, there's no guarantees, but you know, if you were to do a run of shows in a state where they have low numbers and everyone was temperature tested and they space people apart, well, I think that you are being ethical in that instance. You know, you are not guaranteeing, and then it becomes a personal responsibility. You are. You are taking a risk. The audience are taking a risk, and but you've gone. You've made every effort to protect people. But I don't know. I don't know. I like the a idea hub. of the hub. comedy hub. I love the idea that if they if they sent out early in the year, they go, "Who wants to do the Adelaide Fringe?" You are going to have to go into a three week hub in Adelaide before the shows start, and let's just see how serious you are about doing your show. Do you think that if Melbourne Comedy Festival proposed that next year? Like maybe it's not in the CBD, but it's uh, just just say they have a quarantined area outside of Melbourne. You know, like it's just a festival grounds where they're going to put all shows for four weeks. Mm. But you would have to hub like an Olympic village. Would you do that? I think even more so like what's happened in the AFL. They should have to shift the Melbourne Comedy Festival to, to another state. <laughs> so <laughs> Queensland or Perth can bid on the rights for the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Well, it makes sense. I mean, would you call it? Can you still call it Melbourne Comedy Festival? I mean, you would. I mean, they do a Melbourne Comedy Festival road show that travels around Australia, so it's just the whole thing's a road show. I guess so. I mean, it is one of those things that we're now thinking about, which is will the comedy festival happen next year? And if it happens, it'll probably happen in a very different way to what it's previously happened because they just won't be able to do it on the scale 
and the intensity that they have previously done it. Uh, maybe taking the lead of the football, because I part of the problem with the socially distanced for what I do is having people all spread out in a theatre, economically it's not great, but also just in a sense of performing yeah. comedy to a spread out theatre, it really sucks out the energy of the room. Maybe, like the AFL, we should put cardboard cutouts. <laughs> I should do a comedy show, but like every second or third seat is like a cardboard cutout of somebody. So at least it feels like you've you got can a do it house. like the King of Comedy, like Rupert Pupkin in his apartment, just like he has that canned laughter on loop and just those creepy cardboard cutouts in the audience. Never have a bad show, mate. Don't have to worry about hecklers. In that case, I mean, it, there is a possibility that it could get to that because I have been, you know, thinking about the idea. It's been four months since I've done a show now, but it's probably going to be not this year and maybe it won't be early next year who knows so it could be a year before i do a show again which is a very long i've never gone that long without doing a show and it's a you know pretty big deal uh to not perform for that long but as i said i want to be socially responsible about it all and then you do start to think well is there a point where i start to think about a way of doing what it is i do for a living in a way like i haven't really done any zoom shows or anything like that but maybe there is a point later in the year where you start to go I have to work out how to build a comedy club in my mm. office and I have to, you know, get cardboard cutouts of my audience and piped in canned laughter and that's what isn't, I do for a job now. Isn't that what Dave Chappelle is doing? Something similar? Like he's got some farmland. I mean, you have the space. You could build mm. a little amphitheater and then, it, like, I think he, you know, they, they have people temperature tested and socially distanced and he does these shows to, like, 200 people when he's in his farm or his backyard or something. I mean, I, I do actually have a natural amphitheatre in the yeah. backyard. Yes. So uh, when you're on our balcony uh, at night, if it's a still night, you can just, like, yell off our balcony and it will echo around the entire valley. So there is... I guess I could do it uh, gladiator style, where I could stand on the balcony of my house and like everybody else sort of had, yeah, <laughs> and I just stand up there and I proclaim from the balcony my comedy, and everybody's just below me in the field, and then they just have to traipse out another way. Well, I was talking to Jim about it yesterday. We were on a walk, and um, this idea of how, like, things aren't going to go back to normal, but then what does the new normal look like, and you know, this idea of restaurants and stuff, like what if, I mean, conceivably it could be a case of like when you go to a restaurant or any kind of service, uh, the person's in like a hazmat suit, face screen, gloves, you know, you're getting temperature tested on the way in. And how quickly would we adapt to that? Like, you know, you generally when you go out for a nice meal, part of the uh, pleasure is being in a nice environment where they've set a mood and a tone and you know is that if you go to a fancy french restaurant or something and like some guy in a radiation suit greets you at the door and sticks a thermometer to your head does it ruin the experience or do you think we quickly adapt just because we need something i think quickly adapt in fact i'd be happy to go out in a full radiation suit i mean it feels to me like it would be comfortable you don't have to do your hair. I mean, you don't even have to have a shower in the morning. You just like get out of bed, you get into your radiation suit, you go out about and you do your business. I, I think that that's, I'm quite into that idea to be so, honest. So uh, you would be in the suit and the waiters are in the suit as well. Is that what you're saying? Everyone, yeah, everyone's in it. Well, what I'm saying is I don't care what other people are doing as long as I'm in my suit, right? <laughs> 
as soon as I'm in my suit, it doesn't actually matter what anybody like, else is doing. In fact, maybe I should just start wearing a full radiation suit and start doing gigs. Just go, come if you want to come. I'm fine. I'm in my full radiation well, suit. Well, if, if your entire audience was in like complete head-to-toe radiation suits, does that, I mean, that muffles the laughter. Is the sound of muffled laughter better than, like if you had a full audience in radiation suits, is that better than like a socially distanced half full audience who aren't in radiation suits? Like is the sound of muffled laughter? Well, I would like to think that the radiation suits have some sort of microphone oh. or speaker on the outside of them so you can communicate Am- with How the about world. this, Will? So- Amplifiers. Like it's a speaker, but they can crank it up. So the laughs are sounding like twice as loud. Yeah, crank it up to 11, guys. Come out to the show, sit socially distanced, but crank your amplifiers up to 11. It'd be awesome too, because you could probably, there'd be some app or something you could download into the speaker box in your radiation suit, which, you know, you could put in like Eddie Murphy's laugh or, you know, some famous laugh, George McFly's laugh or something like that. So you don't even have to laugh yourself. You just press a button and Eddie Murphy does his thing. I like that. You can find all the best laughs from around the world. With Seth Rogen. And maybe that's actually what you do with your. That's what you do with your cardboard cutout. Yeah. Like all your cardboard cutouts are. In fact, why stop at the idea of having their laughs? One cardboard cutout could be Eddie Murphy. One could be. I could have an audience full of my favorite comedians and favorite laughers. Yeah, right. With their sort of electronic laughs coming from those seats. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, you, and you could have like a whole. So who are the famous laughs? So Seth Rogen is a famous laugh. Eddie Murphy's a famous laugh. Um, are there any other famous laughs? That's it. Seth Rogen and <laughs> Eddie Murphy. The two most famous laughs, laughs in history. I can't, can you think of another famous laugh? Ha 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 ha. What Phoenix from Joker? But that's not a real laugh. You just yes, they're my they're my three: Seth Rogen, Eddie Murphy, and Joaquin Phoenix from The Joker. They're my three laughs I would like in the room. Thanks. <laughs> when I was uh, like thirteen or fourteen, like most boys uh, my age were way into Eddie Murphy and like Delirious and Raw and all that kind of stuff. And I remember one of my mates started adopting the Eddie Murphy laugh. Just as started off, it was one of those things that started off like a joke, like an ironic reference kind of thing. But then we all started doing it and pretty soon that became our laugh. It was a weird thing for about a two-year period when we laughed. We would laugh like Eddie Murphy. Can you still do the Eddie Murphy laugh? Hang on, let me see. Hang on, I've got to get back in here. <laughs> I think the answer's no. Hang on, I'm just trying to remember how it goes. No. <laughs> I can't. I clearly can't. It sounds like I'm choking on a chicken wing. Um. <laughs> Guys, Eddie Murphy's choking in his hazmat suit. Get to him. You can't do mouth to mouth. I can't. Can you do it? Try. <laughs> I don't know if that's someone laughing or is a, a seal in that hazmat suit. <laughs> So, I get Seth Rogen, Eddie Murphy, Joaquin Phoenix, a seal, or seal, seal, the musical artist seal, um, a laughing hyena and a kookaburra. That's my audience. (laughs) (laughs) I think I... No. I can't do it. No, that's a dog. That's definitely a dog. That's a sleeping dog. Good times. Good times. Um, did you see that report from the New York Times about aliens that the, the recovering of uh, of um, vehicles that are not of this earth? No. 
Tell me. Um, the New York Times. So apparently there is a, I think I've got the article right here. It seems fitting in this era where like, you know, everything is going crazy that aliens would exist. So this is from the New York Times. The headline is, No longer in the shadows, a Pentagon's UFO unit will make some findings public. For over a decade, the program, now tucked inside the Office of Naval Intelligence, has discussed mysterious events in classified briefings. Uh, this is by Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keane. Uh, despite Pentagon statements that it disbanded a once-covert program to investigate unidentified flying objects... The effort remains underway, renamed and tucked inside the Office of Naval Intelligence, where officials continue to study mystifying encounters between military pilots and unidentified aerial vehicles. Pentagon officials will not discuss the program, which is not classified, but deals with classified matters. Yet it appeared last month in a Senate committee report outlining spending on the nation's intelligence agencies for the coming year. The report said the program... The Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force was to standardise collection and reporting on sightings of unexplained aerial vehicles, and it was to report at least some of its findings to the public within 180 days after passage of the Intelligence Authorisation Act. While retired officials involved with the effort, including Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader, hope the program will seek evidence of vehicles from other worlds, its main focus is on discovering whether another nation, especially any potential adversary, is using aviation technology that could threaten the United States. You <laughs> I, I think that this is not about aliens. This, it's clearly in that last line where Harry Reid's going, I hope that they're going to explore this as aliens, but they're saying it's most likely not aliens. It's probably just different countries with different like flying objects that we can't identify. Well, in 2017, the New York Times disclosed the existence of a, pre a predecessor unit called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, People working in the program said it was still in operation uh, in 2017 and beyond. The program was begun in 2007 under the Defence Intelligence Agency and was then placed within the Office of Undersecretary for Intelligence, which remains responsible for its oversight. Um, the Pentagon program's previous director, a former military intelligence official who resigned in 2017, confirmed that the new task force evolved from the Advanced Aerospace Program. So that's what it started off with, Will. This is what they're saying. It's no longer has to hide in the shadows. It will have a new transparency. Uh, for more than a decade, the Pentagon program has been conducting classified briefings, congressional committees, aerospace company executives, and other government officials, according to interviews uh, with some who have seen the unclassified briefing documents. In some cases, earthy, earthly explanations have been found for previously unexplained incidents. Even lacking a plausible terrestrial explanation does not make an extraterrestrial one more likely, an astrophysicist said. Now, he's just pouring water on what is a, a, a good story. Mr. Reid, the former Democratic senator from Nevada who pushed for funding uh, the earlier UFO program when he was majority leader, said he believed that crashes of objects of unknown origin may have occurred and, then and that retrieved materials should be studied. After looking into this, I came to the conclusion that there were reports, some were substantive, 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 is that a word? And some not so that there were actual materials that the government and private sector had in their possession, he said. No crash artifacts have been publicly produced for independent verification because they're fucking alien. And some retrieved objects, such as unusual metallic fragments, were later identified from laboratory studies as man-made. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that's an anticlimax. So here's what I'm saying. Here's my theory on... Because I believe perhaps that there is a possibility of there being other life in this universe. It seems 
bizarre that we might be the only, you know, evolved sort of human life like in the entire universe. However, at the same time, I don't think this is going to be secret alien ships. My argument to that is Donald Trump. With all the things that Donald Trump has said out loud, has tweeted, has revealed, you can't tell me if there was every, any evidence in the government that there were actually aliens that Donald Trump wouldn't be leading with that at the moment. Do you think that they would tell him, though? I mean, it's like the, the, this is a, they were saying it's only just been declassified. Do you think that that's one of those things? It's like, if he came out and said it, you probably, in fact, maybe they should, maybe that's why they've released it. Like, if he was to come out now and say something, you'd be like, oh my God, like this is a dude who says, man, woman, <laughs> you saw that video, man, woman, camera. Uh, for him to come out and then say aliens exist, you could easily dismiss it. It actually provides perfect cover. Yeah, but he hasn't. That's the point. Like he's in such trouble at the moment that you you can't tell me that the best thing to cover for what's going on with coronavirus in the US wouldn't be to announce they've found alien life. He would be leading with that. So you reckon at his next coronavirus briefing, he just walks in with like, I don't know, like one of those kind of uh, uh, zip up kind of autopsy bags. <laughs> just like someone wheels it in behind him. And before he starts his briefing, he just unzips it and just holds up like a grey. It's like a big-eyed grey and says, look, look at this. Found this in Roswell. I mean, how does that help his re-election chances? Well, because he's exposed to the American public that he's the only one that will tell you the truth, that everything is fake news. It plays into his very narrative, right? And that we face a greater threat right now than the threat of the pandemic that's being released on Earth. We face this threat of there being an alien life force and you need a strong leader who'll tell you the truth and won't give you fake news on the fact that there are aliens and we need to bond together to fight the aliens now. But don't you think if he did that, knowing how terribly he's handled the pandemic and how impulsive he is and stuff, like if there was, just say they did come out, just say this report actually confirmed, look, we've been finding all these vehicles. We actually have recovered a couple of bodies. We... We haven't been in contact with them recently, but there is every possibility that they will revisit again. We do not know if they're going to be friendly or hostile. I don't think it helps his re-election because he he's so um, uh, unpredictable. You'd you'd want you'd want a statesman, you'd want someone to make first contact who's not going to grab the alien by the pussy, <laughs> grab him by his alien pussy. You know. Well, maybe I mean? he leans into it. Maybe he says, we've discovered aliens. And the thing is, the only point where they are susceptible is their pussies. And you need a president <laughs> who's willing to grab them by the pussy to disarm them. I'm the man who's qualified for the job. Okay. We pitch a remake of Independence Day. <laughs> so instead of Bill Pullman, it's Donald Trump as a president and instead of uploading a virus to defeat the aliens they just send up donald trump in an airplane to the the mothership and he just goes up to the biggest alien and just grabs it by the pussy <laughs> and that's it uh i think that that would be an amazing film if you revealed that like the only way that you could defeat the aliens is to do what on earth would be considered you know, assaulting somebody and is quite rightly Assault. against the law. <laughs> like, you know, uh, but the only man who's qualified is Donald Trump. He's the man who's, you know, shown in the past, like he's on record saying that this is, you know, one of the things he defines himself by. He's a pussy grabber. And they elected a pussy grabber knowing he was a pussy grabber, Charlie. Maybe there was a certain sense with the American people mm. that sometime in the next four years that they would need a qualified pussy grabber to stave off an alien invasion. 
I know that sounds ridiculous, but considering but then, the state of the world right now, does it sound any more... <laughs> if that was in the news tomorrow, it wouldn't any, seem no. out of, like, you know, bounds for this year. Do you think then there could be an issue, though? Because we don't know what the customs of these aliens are. Like, maybe grabbing them on the pussy is some kind of... Like, it has a different meaning. Maybe it's not assault. Maybe it's... Uh, like, maybe it's, a, it's considered, like, a greeting or a declaration of war. I mean, that could be... An even bigger problem for us. Well, is there a sense that the aliens are actually nefarious and they want to take us over, but we're trying to negotiate with them? So we get all the world leaders together and they're going to have like a UN-style conference, you know, and invite the aliens there and, you know, kind of come up with some sort of pact or negotiation, some treaty between us and the alien species so that we can Mm. all live in peace. But the truth is that the aliens are only doing that so they can assassinate all the world leaders. And we think they can't be killed. That's why we've tried everything. We've blasted them with guns and Mm. nukes and all these sort of things, and they're impervious. And then late at night at this UN conference at the bar, Donald Trump's (laughs) with one of the hotter aliens, and he grabs grabs them on the pussy, and they just disintegrate. And he's worked out the secret way to destroy the aliens. I mean... Why? I think it's Stephen Hawking who talked about like if aliens did exist and they were to visit, then that's bad news for us because chances are they're going to be more technologically advanced. But my question with that is, you know, we uh, why would they want to come here? Like what, especially now with the state of this planet, this disease-ridden planet, like what would anyone want with us? Like, if, if this was like a house, this is a house that needs a complete bloody rebuild. We need to get pest control in, clear it out, and build it from the ground up. I imagine that they're not carbon-based life forms. So this would be a, a, a pretty unhospitable environment for an alien. So my feeling is if they do exist, it's more like we are in some kind of like, we're like a zoo to them. They're just coming here to observe what like primitive, like monkey-type biological beings do when their frontal lobe develops to a point where they can start building tools and machinery what's what do they do oh they build weapons and so they're just like maybe they float in and occasionally like you know they have a car breakdown and you know they land on earth and that's what gets recovered by this pentagon unit but i reckon the rest of the time they're just like stay away from these guys like if you go out in on safari to the jungle and you see a bunch of kind of like rabid hyenas you don't go near them because they don't have the cognitive capacity to uh, you know, uh, negotiate or or, or or behave with any kind of civility. They're just wild animals. I reckon on a cosmic level, that's how humans would be observed. Just brutal, violent, irrational. Well, is there a chance that... Um, what, so I've, I've been looking for... A friend of uh, mine is trying to buy a house. And so I've been going to, you know, look at some of the houses on their behalf because it's near where I live. And there was one that I looked at a little while ago where out the front of the house near the road, there was this old dilapidated sort of building. And I said to the real estate agent, I said, you know, what's that? It was quite a scary looking old sort of shed. And he said, oh, that's actually heritage listed. And the problem is if it's heritage listed, you can't do really anything to renovate it and you can't knock it down. What basically the people are waiting to happen is Mm. for it to just naturally fall down. Because once it naturally collapses, then you can actually rebuild and you're not, you know, breaking the heritage listing. Maybe that's what we are to this alien species. The planet is heritage listed. Heritage listed. They can't fasten up our (laughs) impending demise. They've just got to let it play out. 
and then they can come in and they can rebuild from scratch. So what would be the criteria for our heritage listing? Because generally there's some kind of historical significance or cultural significance. Like on a universal level, what is it about us? Is it because we're maybe the last of the carbon-based life forms? Yeah, in our corner of the universe, we're the only sort of intelligent life. We know that we're the only intelligent life in our little bit of the... So on a global scale, if there's a massive, vast alien intelligence out there that is way in advance of us, we would be like... You know, essentially, Earth is like, you know, when they go and visit one of those tribes who've never seen TV in the Amazon. That's what we yeah. are to the rest <laughs> of the universe. We're quirky. We're like, you know what? Let, let them do their own thing. Let's not ruin what they've got going on. But once they fuck it up, we'll come in and we'll cut down all the trees. Well, wasn't that the rule of the Starfleet in Star Trek was if they came across a tribe that was or a planet that was more primitive in their development, they had a rule saying you cannot interfere. Like that's one of the rules is you cannot give them iPhones or, or whatever that to accelerate their development. They have to develop at their own pace. So maybe that is the rule with us. They're like, oh, these guys are very close. There's a bunch of them who've taken magic mushrooms and we think they're on the right path. They seem to have they seem to have an like a, a, a broader view of the, their place in the universe. So those guys will just put our hope in them. But the ones who are like building bombs and killing each other and uh, creating imaginary men to justify the, the, the slaughter and subjugation of each other, We've got to let those guys bomb each other out. The mush magic mushroom guys, the ones who have taken that, that fungus that probably arrived on the planet from an asteroid, we'll let them repopulate the Earth once the other guys have killed themselves. Well, other, I can understand the idea when people think we're living in some sort of simulation, right? Because yeah. humanity at the moment has that real sense of what, like, you know, a kid with an ant farm or a kid playing like Sims would have. Whereas early on, you know, the idea that the aliens came and built the pyramids, that's when you get that simulation game. You're like, oh, yeah, no, it's nice. It's fun. I'll do positive things. I'll build pyramids. I'll advance the civilization. Yeah. And then after a while, you get distracted by other things and you get bored and you're just like, let's see if I can magnify glass and ant to death. And that's what it feels like in the world right now, that it's just suddenly like, yeah. <laughs> let's send in a plague, let's send in fires, let's warm up the planet. I just want this game to be over. Let's see what can kill them off. Well, it, I, I was listening to an interview with someone the other day and uh, they were talking about psychedelics and they were saying that, you know, um, they not, they're not necessarily a drinker or a drug taker, but they have experimented with psychedelics from the perspective of, um, like personal development. And that was sort of, you know, the people talk about the potential of things like ayahuasca with PTSD and magic mushrooms dealing with depression and things like that. And he was sort of talking about, if you look at the history of any religion, um, there is a strong suggestion that most religions have a link to a psychedelic plant, whether it's mushrooms or ayahuasca or anything like that. And this idea that if more people could experiment with psychedelics and because that feeling you get of your place in the world and having an understanding a connection to the natural world and your humanity and the humanity of other people like maybe that what well, maybe what's happened is the the genesis of all those religions you know the burning bush could have been like a psychedelic plant that was filling the air with fumes that people inhaled and thought they were hearing yahweh talk or whatever Maybe the genesis, we, we, got it, we got it wrong. Like, yes, there was this kind of moment of enlightenment, this psychedelically induced moment of enlightenment. But then when that was tried to, when you, it's kind of when you're trying to explain a trip to someone, you can't, it's impossible. So then the person who's hearing secondhand about the trip goes, oh yeah, well, I can take with that and I can run with it. Uh, maybe I'll send it to my mate 
um, Willis Maximus for a punch-up <laughs> and then we'll start a religion. But maybe that's what we need to do is go back to everyone. It's, get everyone, just, everyone has to take a dose of psychedelics. In fact, maybe that should be the vaccine for COVID is there's the vaccine definitely that will deal with the disease, but we're also going to microdose you with just a little bit of magic mushrooms. Yeah, everybody needs to microdose magic mushrooms. Will it cure it? No, it won't cure it, but we're going no. to try to fix some other stuff in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always thought that about psychedelics because it's, it's one of the rare drugs where you're allowed to say, I don't really do drugs. But, you know, I've experimented with psychedelics for my personal development. You know, it's, it's rare that you hear someone say, I'm just experimenting with cocaine for my personal development. <laughs> I've just been adding a little cocaine to my, yeah, I'm experimenting with meth. You know, I just felt like I was sleeping too much. So I'm doing some meth experiments at the moment. <laughs> but I also think about psychedelics. The great psychedelic experiences that I've had in my life have been ones that have not been about partying. They have been about not you at know, all, yeah. learning something about yourself and your place in the universe and have genuinely changed me as a human being. And there is a propensity to want to then share that experience with people and say, hey, you should do this too because I got something amazing out of it. And I've always wondered whether that's because you have got something amazing out of it or psychedelics have the best after-sales policy of all time because there's something about taking psychedelics that makes you want to then tell other people. It's like Amway psychedelics. You're like, hey, you should t try psychedelics. Mm. Good good fucking theory to keep getting people to take psychedelics, psychedelics. Well, that's, but the people who, who don't want to take psychedelics or who... Uh, rabidly anti-psychedelic every time i've talked to someone about it it's generally the kind of person who has control issues you know it's like uh you know they're terrified of you know losing their minds or letting go and i'm like well i think that's actually you don't necessarily have to take a psychedelic but you need to learn to let go of things like you can't if you think you can control this life or what's going on then you're in for a rude shock if, if this last uh you know eight months has taught us anything it's we're not in control of anything we're not you know the bushfires and the pandemic and stuff so if you think that uh you know you taking some kind of plant that grows in the ground that's going to make your brain go into different directions is somehow uh permanently going to alter uh, your ability to control your thoughts yeah i think i think that's the point is you're learning you're learning to let go i mean there's lots of ways to do it. Did you see, we talked about the football last night. Um, the Saints played Port Adelaide. Did you see that footage of them practicing mindfulness at quarter time? Yes, absolutely. It, I mean, what is, <laughs> what is so going on fucking... with AFL when everybody's doing mindfulness in the middle of a fucking pandemic? Like, you know, you've got two teams playing each other in a place they shouldn't be playing. Like, I mean, they might as well have microdosed mushrooms at three-quarter time. In fact, I would like to see that before the end of the AFL season. I want to see Gil McLaughlin come out and say, not only are we going to play 35 games in 20 days every night of the week, but the last three rounds, everyone's going to microdose mushrooms at three-quarter time. <laughs> but there was something really kind of... Um, I mean, as someone who's, who meditates and, and has practiced mindfulness, I was like... Yeah, why wouldn't you? Like, this is the perfect environment. I mean, I sort of do it as a way of understanding, you know, where anxiety comes from and all that kind of stuff. And um, you're in a high-pressure situation, like, where you have to sort of perform at an optimum level and make split-second decisions. Probably the perfect opportunity. If you can be standing in front of 30,000 opposition fans, hostile opposition fans, and taking these big, deep, calming breaths, you know, and, and centering yourself. Like, one of the meditations I do... Um, 
you sort of build up to it. But then when you get to a certain point of experience, when you start to meditate, the thing that you want to do is tune into all your sensory impulses at once. The way he describes it is like, it's a cloud of impulses. So you feel your body in the chair, you tune into the sounds around you, the uh, near sounds, fast sounds. Um, if there's any light coming in through your eyelids, what that looks like. So you try and basically draw, uh, have an overview of every sensation that's in your body at the moment as a way of being really, really centered. And what that kind of does is it stops you from, the way he describes it is like anxiety is casting your mind into the future about events you can't control. And depression is casting your mind into the back and looping over mistakes you've made in the past. And so this idea is like, if you can somehow be so cognizant of everything that's happening to you in the present. So every impulse, every ache, every, you know, tickle, every sound, every light source that's coming to your eyes. It's, it's a, it's a really um, powerful way of staying in the moment. And that way you know, you're not having these anxious thoughts about, I mean, imagine with the footballers, it's like, uh, who do I handball to? <laughs> you know, uh, where's my opponent? You are just responding in the moment. You've done the training, you've done the preparation, you know how to act in a situation. I think it's good. I like the idea that psychedelics are like a podcast. At the end, it's always tell a friend, if you like this trip, give us five stars. <laughs> Um, let's get to some mail, Will. Uh, to anyone who wants to send us uh, some correspondence. Oh, I will can. say this, by the way, um, to just complete the oh, yeah. horse uh, talk from earlier oh, on. <laughs> Back to the horse. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that we're optimistic about is the idea that, because apparently mushrooms grow in this area, but what you need is mm. rain and you need some sort of animal shit for them to grow in. Poop. And so... There yeah. is a possibility that the combination of it being raining a lot at the moment, plus having horses in the paddock, might lead to some medicinal consciousness. <laughs> well, that's why uh, that's why your horse has been grinding. He's been bloody strutting around at the music festival, <laughs> shitting on the ground, creating his own drugs. I mean, it's a cheap night out for your horse. I mean, it shouldn't be against the law to take magic mushrooms if a horse shits in your own paddock. Like, if it doesn't leave your property... <laughs> Like a horse shitting in a paddock is not like a meth lab. I haven't set up a meth lab, but I've got a horse shitting in the paddock yeah. where mushrooms might grow. If I then took those mushrooms and I don't leave my property at any stage, that should not be against the law. I mean, it shouldn't be against the law anyway, but that should definitely not be against the law. I, I would want to know actually what the legal... I mean, uh, how would they prosecute that? Like if it's your land and it's not like you've cultivated it because mm. mushrooms are wild. If you've And you could even argue... Uh, like you could plead ignorance and be like, oh, I didn't know they were psychedelic. I just thought that I had mushrooms and I just put them in my tea. <laughs> like you I mean, do. I don't know like what a normal thing that you that. do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, how can anyone prosecute that? It's like you've done, you've done, you've done nothing proactively illegal. It's literally happenstance. It's happened, and if anything, it's misadventure. Like you have gone into your backyard to do a bit of gardening. You've come home with a bag of mushrooms and somehow you've ingested them. Like that shouldn't, I mean, A, you're right, it shouldn't be illegal, but B, you could argue that it was all happenstance. I wouldn't be able to argue while I was on the mushrooms though. <laughs> that would be the problem. <laughs> you just want to just want to stare at the judge. Just look at that wig. What is the, why is that wig on Would your you mind head, if man? I touch like, it? Can I just touch that? Can I touch it for a little while? Can I just stroke? I, I just feel like it'd be more comforting than me right now if you let me stroke your wig. You can take it off if it makes you feel uncomfortable, <laughs> but I think you would enjoy somebody... Like just brushing your hair. Does anyone just brush your hair, man? 
I think that would be a really nice feeling while you're trying. You're judging all day. You're having to decide whether people are right or wrong. And in the grand scheme of things, you know that these are just arbitrary rules we've come up as a human species. And you're here every single day having to make these binary choices between things that are neither black nor white. They are different shades of grey. And it's a thankless job. Half of the room always hates you at the end of the day. Sure, you can reconcile the fact that you're putting dangerous people in prisons. But then even the prison system itself, it's discriminatory. And you know that better than anybody. You see it every day, how biased it is against the economic ways of our society what i'm saying man is just let me brush your hair just let me brush your hair for a while uh, i'm sorry sir this is a boost juice <laughs> would you like to order something you're starting to freak out the other customers <laughs> just put these mushrooms in the juice and put in a protein <laughs> shot as well because it helps my trip and i'll be out of here mate. <laughs> Uh, if you want to send us an email you can at email tofop at gmail.com um, this is from duncan uh, he says, thank you for your words. To Colin Fop, here's another tantalizing Tofop tidbit. Well, not really, to be honest, but I figured if I ever wrote in, I'd address it correctly, and I probably still didn't. Anyway, just wanted to drop you a line to say I've started listening to a recent philosophy episode with Briggs, and in Will's introduction ramble, he talks about the passing of his grandmother. Well, my grandfather passed away this week. Uh, this is on the 7th of July, in case you're reading far into the future. And I wanted to say I really connected with what you said during the introduction. Bumpa was 96 and full of life a month ago. He was still living at home with his wife, but unfortunately fell ill and eventually succumbed. It was not coronavirus, but of course it had its effect. It's difficult because we weren't able to visit him in his final days and I won't be able to attend his service. I thought the way you spoke about your grandmother was beautiful and eloquent and in many ways captured how I and my family were feeling about our own situation. So thank you for continuing to be so open about mental health, in this case, grief. I love the podcasts, and I think that you guys are doing your bit to keep everyone's head above water with your non-succinct conversations with no point. <laughs> In this case, let me offer my own, hopefully not too morbid spin on the tagline. Thanks for keeping us laughing while we celebrate their living. Duncan. I like I that. Like it. Thanks, Duncan. I'd like to have a beer with Duncan, because Duncan's my mate. I can't at the moment, unfortunately, because <laughs> of social distancing. <laughs> Dave writes in, g'day, Will and Charlie. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got phlegm at the moment. <clears throat> Probably didn't need to know. I think right. it was all the Eddie Murphy attempts. It's just dredged up all this phlegm. G'day, Will and Charlie. Love the pod. Quick email about Charlie's mattress situation. Be okay, great if so, that was the um, way they could test for coronavirus, by the way. They've discovered the best way for us to get enough phlegm <laughs> to test is could you come in and try to do the Eddie Murphy laugh? Doctor, no, this is the only way. Do it. Uh, just to remind people, so some hard rubbish uh, dumped outside my place a few weeks ago. Uh, the, the council came, took everything but the mattress. I don't know what happened. It was there for three or four days. Um, no one seemed to take responsibility for it, but then it disappeared. But I think Dave has some insight here. Uh, G'day, Will and Charlie. Love the pod. Quick email about Charlie's mattress situation. My sister, who I live with, um, mate, why are you living with her? Just start a WhatsApp group. It's much easier. You can mute it anytime you want. <laughs> Uh, she organized a hard rubbish a few months ago to coincide with her replacing her and her kids. Uh, there's a full stop there. I don't think that sentence is structured properly because it sounds like he's, she's replacing herself and her kids. I My sister it. organized a hard rubbish a few months ago to coincide. <laughs> the garbage with her man comes up and, and her like kids. three human beings, <laughs> two children. <laughs> so that's, sorry. <laughs> I caught hard rubbish. I arranged this. I thought it'd be mean to put the kids in a skip. <laughs> Uh, the council directed them to put the mattress on a separate pile and cover them if possible. 
The collection was booked in for a week, uh, the week of Labor Day in March, and early Tuesday morning, the council came and collected everything except the mattress. Those fucking mattresses stayed there for five weeks. Five weeks. They sat there getting wet and ruining our nature strip. It was pretty damn embarrassing having them out there all that time. After a few weeks, she called the council and basically was told, we'll pick them up when we can. No clues as to why this is, but chances are your mattress might stay there a while. So best of luck for your sanity, Dave. I think it's got a, I think it must be an issue with like OH&S in the same way that you can't donate mattresses and things like that to, to St. Vinny's and stuff like that. It must be just a, I don't know, like human goo, human weird goo that gets out of your body into a mattress. I know, but I'm like, I've spent my life staying in Airbnbs or hotels or other people's houses, all these sort of things. And never really, as long as the sheets are clean, you feel like you're protected from whatever human goo is below there. So it does feel like, I imagine they get some really shitty mattresses. So they just have to have a policy that you can't have any mattresses. So it's to avoid the really <laughs> shitty mattresses as opposed to but it's all, the good mattresses. Isn't it all going this, the same place? That's all going into a garbage dump. Why does it matter if it's shitty or, or not? Well, I guess there are some things that perhaps in hard rubbish get recycled or get taken apart for parts right. and that sort of stuff, whereas <clears throat> your mattresses all probably have to be dumped and they all have to be collected by the special mattress squad. I don't know, man. Like I watched them collect that hard rubbish and essentially they put it in a compactor. Like... They were throwing in like sofas and and no no white goods, but just like big big furniture and stuff, and it was just getting crushed up. It didn't look like there was any sorting or recycling going on. I mean, and you can, as you said, you can put the couch and like people sleep on the couch, so it is a arbitrary line of demarcation they've decided to go with. That if there's any listeners who work for like local councils or whatever who can shed some light on this mattress situation. Uh, hit us up. Email tofop at gmail.com. Uh, this is from... For our new segment, Mattress Matters. <laughs> Brendan. Uh, dear Will and Charlie, after listening to the 300th episode, which was Solid Gold Tofop, I decided to go back and re-listen to the Death of Superpod episode. While listening, I started to see the link between Tofop, the Tofop universe and the Bill and Ted universe. Is it possible that Superbod would have been the podcast unite the world and end all suffering, but it has been lost, but as it has been lost, the world has become a mess. With the new Bill and Ted movie coming out soon, will Tofop be able to face the music and save humanity? Keep up the good work, Brendan. Uh, thanks for writing in, Brendan. I broke my own rule. Last Tofop, time we spoke about Bill face, and- face the microphones. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last time we spoke about Bill and Ted, I said I wouldn't watch any more trailers because yes. I wanted to be surprised. Uh, but a new one came out on Friday and I watched it and I wish I hadn't because I got a sense that I'm not going to like the movie. I didn't really love the trailer. Did you see it? I saw it. I I thought the storyline's an okay storyline. It makes sense as a, yeah. as a vibe. And it just is going to depend how much they lean into certain aspects of it. But there is a there is something about in the trailers at least, that doesn't quite feel like a Bill and Ted's movie yet. But I'm hoping that when I see the entire thing, it's going to feel different to the trailers. Because I I don't mind the premise. I think the premise is solid. It feels like it's a cool idea and it's a cool concept for a movie that kind of, you know, looks back at its history but embraces the future, literally, as well. So I kind of like the conceit of it. So, no, I still have hope, but I understand what you're saying, that there's just a certain creakiness or something to it that doesn't quite yeah well Gemma watched it with me and she was like it looks like Keanu's face is melting (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think it's the same weird feeling you got when you saw that Dumb and Dumb, Dumber sequel 20 years after the fact where they still had the same wardrobe and haircuts. It's like, this is, it's 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 almost Uncanny Valley. You you know what they're meant to look like, but they they look slightly different. I thought Alex Winter looks relatively okay, but I don't know why Keanu just didn't stick with the, the John Wick beard. Maybe there's some separation from John Wick, but he looks good with that beard. And if you th- think about the end of Bogus Journey, when they come back to do their final performance, so they go into the future to get learn how to play their instruments and they come back and play their final song and Ted comes back with a beard. So I was like, oh, well, it's conceivable that, you know, 30 years later he would still have a beard, but they've gone with bare-faced Keanu and it's, it's off-putting. <laughs> Not too late to change it. They could get the mustache people from Justice people League. From- <laughs> <laughs> they could actually, they could take the hair that they edited out of Justice League and they could put it on Keanu's face. They say, we don't have enough for a full beard, but we reckon we can get a goatee. There was one joke at the end of the trailer, which I actually thought was great and is, is good for our times where they find their daughters and they're like, how are you? And they're like, well, we're dead and we're in hell. Yeah, but how are you? Oh yeah, we're good. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, that seems... <laughs> That that's the, the 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 message of the times. We're dead and in hell, but fine. yeah, we're good. I mean, I'm glad that it's coming out on streaming, like September one, mm. I believe it's coming out on streaming and in cinemas, perhaps if people can go to cinemas. But definitely, they're gonna they're not gonna Christopher Nolan it and just refuse to actually show the movie until it can come out in cinemas. Yeah. But um, I it's perfect for like a yeah, streaming. I think so. Premiere, I, don't you reckon? It's one yeah. of those things that I'm now like, okay, great. I've got something to look forward to in September. <laughs> I finally got something to look forward to this year. Uh, this is from Ethan. Hey, guys, just listening to episode 301, where you're talking about Rage Against the Machine. Now, I know, Charlie, you've already said that you hate your bands and they sound like garbage because you're an old man, but you should definitely check out a band called Stray From The Path, especially the album Anonymous. You can definitely tell it was inspired by Rage. Also, check out the cover of Bulls on Parade by a cover of locals from Byron Bay, the greatest band ever. You may have heard of them. Do you know who he's talking about? What band is from Byron Bay, Will? Pete Murray and no. the Pete Murray Band. No. Um, a famous road in Ewingsdale. Um, no, tell me. Who? Parkway Drive. Oh, Parkway Drive. Are they a Byron did you know Bay that's band? What... I, I did not know yeah. that Parkway Drive was There's from a... Byron Bay. Yeah, there's a street in Ewingsdale called Parkway Drive, which I believe, you know, that's either where the band formed or one of them grew up there or whatever. But when you drive through that part of Ewingsdale, there's always fans on the road, like taking photos of the signs because they've got, it's written in big white letters on the, on the, on the asphalt, Parkway Drive. And because when I'm in Byron, there's a masseuse that I go and see out there. So I often, every time I drive past, you'll see some kind of like uh, tatted up, kids with like baseball caps and stuff taking it in turns to take selfies in front of the parkway drive sign okay it's like, well that's it's like that's, the abbey Ro- the abbey road crossing of byron bay you know what that's given me something to do in october so bill and ted's in <laughs> september and then in october i'm gonna go and visit parkway drive get a selfie uh anyhow love the show congratulations on reading 300 episodes ciao for now ethan ah thank you to everyone who wrote into us um uh, that's it for this week of uh, this episode of TOEFOP. If you want to support the show, there's many ways you can do it. 
Um, some are financial, others are not. If you want to support us financially, you can go to patreon.com forward slash TOEFOP. Patreon is like a crowdfunding uh, website, but it's a monthly deduction. So you nominate an amount you want to give to the show and each month it gets deducted from your account and sent to us. And we try and put up a bunch of bonus content on the Patreon to entice you. So uh, we have bonus episodes that come out every fortnight. We recorded one a few days ago that'll be coming out this week. There's uh, comic strips, Everyone Relax, uh, which is based on uh, previous episodes of TOEFOP. There's Quantum Cop, which is an original comic strip by James and I there's behind the scenes videos there's heaps of photos there's just a bunch of great stuff you can go in and get your bonus content for Um, if you don't have the money to spare which a lot of you don't that's fine there's other ways you can support us one way to do that is to go to our YouTube channel and watch some of our bonus content that's up there there's our web series Lessons for Life which is sweeping the award circuit Will Uh, just been accepted into Portland uh, the Houston uh, Web Series Festival looks like we might be getting into Holly Shorts in Los Angeles Uh, so you can see the you can see the web series that put us on the map. <laughs> I mean, good time to go into Portland. People have got a lot of time to stay at home oh, yeah. and watch Holy their little shit. funny web films. We have other videos up there as well. We've got whole episodes. We've got episode clips. We've got little animations that we should probably do a few more of those. Uh, we haven't done one of those in a while. I'll get in touch with Terry and see if he's got time to do some more of those. Um, other than that, uh, just like, subscribe, tell people about the show. All of it helps us uh, go up in the ratings and, and that just uh, tells sponsors that we're worth sponsoring. Correct. Yes. Uh, Will, Willosophy. We have other shows as well. Yeah, Julia Gillard was on last week, and this week it'll be either Ursula Carlson or Osher. Uh, so I had a really good chat with our great mate Osher, uh, so that'll either come out this week or next week. So Ursula and Osher over the next couple of weeks. Oh, and speaking of Osher, uh, we have a release date, well, not a release date, a release window for Dad Pod Series 2. Uh, I think it's in the middle of August we'll be releasing Season 2 of Dad Pod. Ten episodes, I believe. Bunch of great guests on that. Um, so keep your eyes peeled. I'll let you know on social media when that's happening. And we have another podcast, which is about football, called Two Guys, One Cup, oh, yeah, an AFL right. podcast. And look, we've pretty much abandoned well, the idea that it's an AFL podcast. It, despite the fact that both of our teams are going well, it's mostly just a fan fiction podcast and a ridiculous conversation podcast much like this these days. So uh, even if you don't like football, you might enjoy that show. We've really found our groove and I'm really enjoying it. More fan fiction about Nat Fife and Ben Cunnington. And if you it's don't funny know who those guys are. We did the first series of it in 2016 when the Bulldogs obviously won their historic premiership. You know, the only premiership they've won in my lifetime. And you'd think that would be the peak of the show. But no, I think four years in, when we finally <laughs> abandoned the idea that the show is really about football, it just uses football at the base for ridiculous conversations. I'm now just going, I really look forward to doing it. I'm having a real good time doing it. <laughs> and you can have a good time listening as well. Uh, I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. <laughs> This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you.